0: Alright, good evening everyone. I know that, uh, that people are still trickling in, so we'll, we'll just begin, but Merit Hashem, by the time we get through the sponsorships, we'll, uh, we'll be ready to start. I don't want to penalize those who, uh, Baruch Hashem have been here since eight. So I want to begin really by thanking our sponsors tonight, to thank Robin Schaefer for dedicating the sheer tonight for the energy and shi'urim given here at the shul. Thank you, Robin, for your your dedication. To thank Pam Weissman for dedicating the shir tonight, in honor of Patty Levy, Abigail Rosemore, for all they have done for our congregation and community. To thank Nina Allen Goldberg for dedicating the shir tonight to commemoration of the shloshim of her beloved mother, Miriam Garfield. We hope that in the merit of our Talmud Torah, the Neshem will have Aliyah, and the family, a nechama. We have an anonymous sponsor tonight in the zchus of Our Loved Ones Finding Their Shiduchim Bekarov. Quite beautiful. Ruth Gordon, in loving memory of her beloved mother-in-law, Devorah Bas on the occasion of her 10th yard site. Gail Goldberg, and thank you, Gail, in, in honor of Rebetzin Aviva Silber. Thank you. Jeremy and Rachel Lassen, in honor of Jeremy's siblings, recognizing the gift Tamar provided the entire family, A little over a year ago and acknowledging Noah's dedication, support and constant guidance, all of which could not have happened without the sacrifice of their respective spouses. Ira, and Risa. We thank Eli and Devor Cohn for dedicating the shir tonight, Le'iloi Nishmas, Devorah's mother, Esther Nechama, Bas Aaron Meir, whose 10th yard site will be this Pesach. We hope that in the merit of our Talmud Torah, the Neshama will have an aliyah and the family in Nechama. We thank Chaim and Hallie Gottesman for dedicating the shir tonight in honor of Shel Rosenfeld, Tanya Shichman for dedicating the shir in honor of Rabbits and Silber, and an anonymous sponsor as well. We thank all of our sponsors. It's quite beautiful to see the outpouring of support. And it's quite beautiful, Baruch Hashem. As I remarked by our Purim Shir, it's quite beautiful to be able to be at a point in time where we're able to begin learning together in person, growing together in person. Baruch Hashem, I think we've utilized all the technological possibilities that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has put on this good earth to be able to learn Torah together. But nothing is quite like being able to share the experience of spiritual growth together. I also want to take the opportunity to thank Shani Topper, to thank our incredible executive director for all of her incredible work, to thank our office manager, Michal Reitberger, for her incredible work. And really, these two incredible women work indefatigably on behalf of our just trying to accomplish so many incredible things. I, I know I often drive them crazy with a lot of last minute changes and additions, but they're, you would never know. They're so composed and so wonderful. So thank you. Thank you for working so hard on behalf of Arkihila. And also, I just want to take the opportunity. I want to, I see Jamie Rubin is here. I want to take the opportunity. Many of you. Don't necessarily know Jamie, but our community owes Jamie an incredible amount of debt. The The Rubens have been longtime members of our and Jamie has been someone who has shepherded our shul. And really, the truth is, our entire community from the beginning of this pandemic, from right when we had to shut down after Purim, until now, and uh, Jamie, just on behalf, I'm sorry, I'll ask you, I'll, I'll call you for Mechila later on. But uh, Jamie is the wonderful young woman sitting right over here. You can thank her yourself afterwards, but Jamie, really, on behalf of the Kehila, I know how much of your time I took. And it didn't matter, nights, Sundays, weekends, Erev Shabbos, thank you for always being available to us. And thank you for always being able to guide us with such profound dispassionate and solid advice i i honestly feel that baruch hashem we are hopefully on the other end coming out of this because of the advice of jamie and others like her so jamie on behalf of the entire kehila, thank you very much we have the incredible privilege tonight to begin our journey into Pesach. I think this is the first year I have ever given a Pesach shir, uh Three weeks before, a little bit less than three weeks now before Pesach, which I guess is a good idea for a women's shear. I'm guessing within the next couple of weeks, the availability to learn about Pesach is probably significantly diminished. So, but it also offers or represents really an incredible opportunity to also begin focusing on the Yomtiv of Pesach a little bit earlier than we normally do. I think that what often happens in our Yomtiv, in our Yomtiv preparation, is that we get so wrapped up and so swept up in the actual physical preparation for Yomtiv, which of course Pesach has more than any other Yomtiv. And that by the time we kind of get into the Yamtiv spirit, we're so exhausted and so depleted, and we come to Yamtiv, and I know that something special is happening. I know that something incredible is unfolding, but I haven't necessarily done the work to be able to truly understand and appreciate what the dynamic is. So it's a special privilege. I wanna thank you for the privilege of getting ready for Pesach this year a little bit earlier than I than I normally do. And hopefully, again, through the journey that we're going to take this evening, your appreciation of Pesach and Amerit HaShem, your Yom of Pesach, will be just a bit more meaningful. I want to begin with source number one on the sheet. Hopefully everyone has the source sheets. I want to begin with source number one. So this is an incredible Gemara in Mesecha's Pesachim. Do you have a situation in I have an answer. I want to begin with source number one, an incredible Gemara. Gimara that I'm sure you, you've all seen over the years, but one which requires incredible explanation. So the Gimara says, Bechol dar in mean, every generation, a person is obligated to see themselves as if they left Egypt. So this is actually a Mishnah in Meseches Psachim, and it's a very profound Mishnah. What the Mishnah says is as follows, that in general, in Judaism, we don't celebrate historical events. In Judaism, what we do is we take historical events, we extract contemporary meaning, and we use them to infuse contemporary meaning into our lives. So as such, when we come to the Yom Tov of Pesach, we are not simply celebrating an event that occurred thousands of years ago, but rather what the Mishnah is telling me is that my obligation on Pesach, and this is specifically on the night of the Seder, is to see myself as if I have left Egypt, which of course on a basic level means that on the Yom Tov of Pesach, specifically at the Seder, I am supposed to experience some We'll call it salvational, some type of freedom experience. I'm supposed to feel as if I was enslaved, and now I've been free. That is the euphoric feeling that a person is supposed to experience on the night of the Seder and over the course of Pesach. And the question is obvious. How does one experience this? In general, when we see things like this, I understand what the rabbis are trying to accomplish. I just don't understand how to accomplish it. I'll give you another example of this. Tisha we all know that we're supposed to mourn for the base HaMikdash on What's the problem? It's a long time ago, it's a long time ago right? A, a, a very serious. Thank you. Was that Chaya? Good. right? So, so, so I thought it was a bus call for a second. Then So, Chaya says a very good point. In other words, how am I supposed to mourn for something that I haven't had for 2,000 years. So conceptually, I understand my life is deficient. I understand something's lacking. I understand that there's a void. I understand there was something beautiful called the Beis Hamikdash, And without it, my life is incomplete. Our people is incomplete. The world is incomplete. But how do you mourn for something for which you have no frame of reference? This is in general, the challenge we have with mourning for the Beis Hamikdash. And the same idea. Okay, I'm supposed to see myself as if I left Egypt. What what does that mean? On a practical level. On a practical level. So I understand maybe if I'm having a very difficult time in life and I've been extricated from my difficult circumstances, I could relate to this dynamic. I've been enslaved, so to speak. I've been I've been enslaved to my circumstances. You know, the Sforum in Hasidic literature, they point out that Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim, the Shorish of Mitzrayim, which we translate as Egypt, is Mitzar. Mina Mitzar Karasika, the narrow straits. Everyone has their narrow straits in life. Everyone has their challenges. So if I was in a, in a, a terrible predicament and I was extricated from that, I could relate to this. But what if I don't have that? What if Baruch Hashem, life is generally okay and I don't have any dramatic trauma or difficulty? What exactly am I supposed to do with this rabbinic mandate to see myself as if I have left Egypt? So that's going to be the question we're going to focus on tonight. How do I fulfill this? But we're going to go on a little bit of a detour. I'll tell you an interesting story. Last night, l- l- sorry, last week, Thursday night, Thursday night, I came home after Minchamarev and one of my daughters was standing by the door, it's sweet, they often come to open the door when I come home, and one of my daughters, and, and my daughter whispered to me, she said, this is, this is a true story, she said, mommy said she's not buying any more chametz. That was it. And it was like a whisper, mommy said she's not buying any more hummets. And I, 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 but but she was so serious, it, it wasn't clear to me exactly. Like I got, I, I know we're not out of food. We're Baruch Hashem, we're a good Jewish home. We we could ride out three pandemics and we'll be absolutely fine, right? But it was fascinating to me because the truth is that statement said, okay, Pesach is coming, because what happens when Pesach is coming? Chometz becomes the ultimate villain. Right? Chametz, Chametz is, Chametz is mamish. Well, we know Chametz represents the Eight but every Jewish home, Chametz becomes the antithesis of holiness. Chametz becomes the antithesis of the Yom Dov because we know Chametz is an incredibly serious prohibition. And in fact, chametz is unique. The reason why chametz is unique, very quickly, we're not going to get into our Allah over here, but I just want to point out what's unique about chametz. You can't eat chametz, you can't own chametz. You can't have chametz in mixtures. You can't have chametz seen in your possession. You can't have chametz found in your possession. Chametz is even asr banoi. You're not even allowed to get benefit from it. We have no other prohibition. That is anything like chametz. Tell me, that what's the most unique aspect of chametz? I have to ask you. The most unique aspect. What's the status of chametz? Fifty-one weeks out of the year, it's permitted. It's permitted, and yet chametz, which is permitted fifty-one weeks out of the year, is prohibited for seven days. And not only is it prohibited but it's prohibited with the most severe punishment that we have in the Torah, the concept of kares, spiritual excommunication. Nowhere else do we have a prohibition like this, where something is unequivocally permitted for a prolonged period of time for the overall majority of the year. And yet not only is it Usr, <clears throat> not only does it become prohibited on Pesach, but it becomes prohibited, punishable by a very significant punishment. So how are we to understand this? In other words, what is so bad about Khametz? I understand Khametz is asr. We all understand that Khametz is prohibited. And you all understand all the prohibitions I outline. What I'd like to draw your attention to is why. What's so bad about Chometz. What is it that requires that Kodesh Baruch Hu in the Torah to take such a severe stance against leavened products for the duration of seven days of Pesach? Now, remember, you might think to yourself, well, perhaps it's antithetical to the notion of Pesach. I just want to point out, again, I don't want to get technical, but there is a concept called Pesach Sheni. Pesach Sheni means that in the event that someone was ritually impure by the first Pesach and therefore didn't have the opportunity to go ahead and offer up the Paschal Lamb, the current Pesach by the first Pesach, there's a makeup date. In, a month later, the fifteenth of year, interestingly enough, what doesn't apply during Pesach Sheni take a wild guess? Chometz. Interesting. Interesting. There's no prohibition. So if you missed the first of Pesach for whatever the reason, and you're utilizing the makeup date, when you utilize the makeup date, you're offering up your Paschal lamb, and if you want to eat it together with Chametz, that's absolutely fine. So we see that there is a concept of having a quasi Pesach with Chametz, but yet we see, still see the severity with which Chametz is treated on the Omdava Pesach. How are we to understand that severity. So take a look at number three on your sheet. So I'm quoting over here from a beautiful sefer called Masilos Ba'arachasidos. and here he quotes over here as follows. And th- this was such an amazing observation. ahevdel ben lamatzah. What is the only difference between chametz and matzah? Hurak ba'os achos. Interestingly enough, the only distinction between chametz and matzah is one letter. Is one letter. Ki osios mem tzadik, shavos Right? Remember again, both the Hebrew words, chametz and matzah, both have a mem and a tzadik. So wherein lies the difference between chametz and matzah? yesh hevdal. So chametz and matza have two of the same letters. They both have a mem and a tzadik. The distinction is, she chametz yesh yesh he. The distinction is, chametz has a chas. Matzah has a So just for illustrative purposes, I put a ches and a he on your sheet. Not that you need the visual aids, but it'll help us a little bit actually as we go through this concept. So herein lies the fundamental difference, at least linguistically, between chametz and matzah. Chametz has a ches, matzah has a he. What's the deeper meaning of this distinction? And this is where the Mesilos Barach kind of ends. So that's very interesting. And it is intriguing to note that there's such a nuanced difference. Remember, even if you look he, he, ches and hey, excuse me, are two pretty similar letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Right? Even if you look at that, in fact, sometimes, sometimes an error, which could often be found in a Sefer Torah, is when the sofer got a little bit too carried away with the leg of the hay and draws it a little too long, extending upwards. Then your hey could look like a ches. They're easily two interchangeable letters. The only distinction between chametz and matzah is the hay and the ches. So look at number four. There's a beautiful Gemara in mesachas Menachas. The Gemara says, Mipnei ma nivra olam behey. Why was the world created with the letter hey? Now what the Gemara is making reference to over here is that in the Genesis narrative, the Torah uses the word baram" When Hashem created the world. So that's what it means, the world was created with a hey. Hi bar'am. So why was the world created with a hey? So says the Gemara something amazing. Mipnei, so I put the English translation over. You could follow along either in the Aramaic or in the Hebrew. Because a hay literally says is a, a similar appearance to a portico. To a portico. How so? So remember again, if you have a, a portico or, or like a gazebo. Right? So what happens? It's closed on, let's say, three sides. But it's opened on the fourth. So the hay... The hay is open on three sides. Again, well, it, says it has an opening on. It has, it's closed on three sides. Excuse me, closed on three sides and open on the fourth. Meaning what? Shekalaroetz lotzei yedzei, which teaches me that whoever wants to go out can go out. What does this mean? God doesn't hold anyone captive. If you want a relationship with the Rabbana Shalom, that opportunity is there for you. But if you don't want the opportunity, whoever wants to leave is free to leave. That's the open side. The open side. So Hashem created the world with a hey. It's closed on three sides. It's opened on one side. Whoever wants to leave the presence of God, the ribono shel olam lets you go. Which J- just as an interesting aside, so I just want to point out, there are some times where even good people take leave of God. I'll just give you an example of this. We know that when a person loses a loved one, they are in a state of aninos, an onen. And the haloha by an onen is that an onen is exempt from positive mitzvahs. And in fact, some of the commentaries explain why isn't onen, right? Why is a person exempt from positive mitzvahs? Because they lost a loved one. So some explain because since you're involved with the needs of the deceased, there's a concept in Haloha, osik mitzvah patra mina mitzvah. That when you're involved in one mitzvah, you're exempt from a different mitzvah. But others explain that no, the rabbis understood that when a person suffers loss, a person may be angry with God. And it's okay to get angry with God. The good news about God is he has a very thick skin. A very thick skin. You can get angry. And there are times where maybe I feel I don't want to talk. And that's fine. And Chazal, the rabbis, gave me that room. Gave me that ability to have a little bit of distance. Now remember, Aninus only lasts until when? Until when? Until the grave is filled in. So you can't stay angry forever. It, it's actually, it's an incredible paradigm in general for relationships. Sometimes you're entitled to get angry in a relationship. But you can't stay angry forever. At a certain point in time, you have to re-engage, and you have to work it out. You could get angry with God, you could even walk away a little bit, but at some point in time, you have to come back. So, Kadesh Baruch Hu creates the world with a hay, closed on three sides, open on the fourth, to tell you that if man wants to exercise his free choice, his free will, and leave God, he has the ability to do so. Umayi taima talya kare. So, if that's the case, why does the leg of hey, why is there a, dif- why is there a distance a space between the leg of the hay and what we'll call the top of the hay, right? As you can see on your letter hay over here. So if the imagery is that the hay is closed on three sides, opened on the fourth to teach me that everyone has the right to take leave of God if they so choose, then why is there a space between the top of the leg and the top of the hay, the roof of the hay? To which the Gemara says something so beautiful. What hader What it says, says the Gemara to teach me, That if I take leave of God, but then I decide I want to come back, I want to do tshuva, HaKadosh Baruch Hu leaves the door open. He leaves the door open, and the door is that space on the left-hand side of the hay. That space, that doorway, is between the leg of the hay and the top of the hay. I could take leave if I want to, the bottom of the hay is totally open, but if I choose to come back, how Hakadosh Baruch Hu keeps the side door open for me? I asks the Gemara. Bahach, but why? Why can't I just come back the same way I left? If the bottom is open, and that's where I could go ahead and take leave of God, why can't I come back to Hakadosh Baruch Hu through the same bottom opening? To which the Gemara says, "Lo milsa," because it's much easier to leave than it is to come back, and when you come back you have to find a different way in than the way that you left. We're going to explain this concept in just a moment. What's the meaning of the Pasek? So we're not going to get into this whole drush over it, but the Gemara explains this concept, which means if someone wants to achieve purity in life, you know, so Hashem helps them. Now the fact that the phrase tells me that God helps me indicates... That sometimes I can't come back on my own, which tells me that coming back to God is more complicated than taking leave of God. Now, the truth is, we don't even need the Gemara to tell us this because most of us have experienced this within our own lives, because often we take leave of God person commits an a person sins, which we all do. Some of us do it quite often and are very good at it. But when we sin, we take leave of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's easy to get out from the bottom of the hay. It's much more complicated to come back in. And so the way back into Hashem is not the same way I went out. I go out on the bottom, but when I want to come back, I come back through the side door, through the space between the leg of the hay and the top of the hay. So what's amazing about this Gemara is the Gemara teaches me that the world itself was created with the dynamic of Tshuva. From the the inception of the world, the world was rooted, was built upon the foundation stone of Tshuva. Now, we often relegate the discussion of Tshuva to when? Right? Tshuva yamim no ra'im. So we don't often think about Tshuva as a function of the Yom Tov of Pesach. But when you begin to scratch beneath the surface of Yiddishkeit, you begin to realize something absolutely amazing. Which is Tshuva is a part of everything. Tshuva is a part of not only every Yom Tov, but Tshuva is a part of every day. Because Tshuva is part and parcel of the fabric of of the human condition, you know, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov has a beautiful phrase. He says the human condition could be summarized in one phrase: "Ratzel Vishov. Literally, it means forwards and backwards. Forwards and backwards. You know, it's interesting because in life, most of us are aiming for what? 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 what do most of us have the same basic goal. What's the basic goal? Or maybe we don't have the same basic goal, right? Moving forward is good. I think. I think. Once I say, you are going to agree. Consistency, consistency, right? That's like a good goal in life. And if you think about that, that's for everything. I want to be consistent in my relationships, right? Whether it's my human relationships, my relationship with Hakadosh Baruch Hu. I want to be consistent in my career, right? I, I want consistency is a good thing. And here is what's amazing: the one thing that we all strive for is often the one thing that is impossible for us. Because if there is one thing, if there is one thing that we really are not good at, it's consistency. It's the same, I'll give you a simple example. If there is one thing that you could count on in every single human relationship, what is it? Failure. Failure. And I know it sounds like a little bit of a downer, but if there's one thing you could be sure of in every single human relationship, is that someone who you care about deeply will disappoint you and will hurt you. Now, it doesn't mean that it's gonna happen intentionally, but it means it's in, it's it's always going to happen. And it's not going to happen because that person doesn't love you. It's going to happen because we're human beings. And we're frail. And we have good days and we have bad days. And we have successes and we have failures. and We have peaks. We have valleys. Life is this a v'shov. It's this backwards and forwards. I wish I could be consistent. But most times I'm either moving forward or I'm moving backward. Rarely. Am I standing consistently in place? And this is so incredibly important. In the world of relationships, it's important because sometimes when people suffer a relationship setback, they're so overwhelmed by the reality that their relationship had a setback. Like they can't believe that something went wrong. As if there's an expectation that everything in relationships goes right. (laughs) <laughs> it just, everything always works out and it's, it, it's such an aberration when something goes wrong. No. If you have a relationship, if you have any life relationship where everything goes right, please see me after this year and tell me how you did it. Tell me how you did it because if you tell me the secret, I think I could become a very wealthy man by putting it in a book and sharing it with others. No one has a perfect relationship. No one has a consistent relationship. There's the ruts of the show. There's the backwards, there's forwards. The be- so why am I sharing this with you? Because tshuva, Chuva, which means the process. Remember, you can only do tshuva if you strayed. So the process of coming back, the process of coming back and straying is part and parcel of my everyday life. Every day there's chuva. Because every day I've fallen out of the bottom of the hay in some way, shape, or form, and now I have to make my way back in. But what is tshuva? Rabbi Soloveitchik in number six, this is from a sefer titled "Ala Tshuva, Allah Tshuva, Rabbi Soloveitchik's drushes on Chuva. On so I just want to point out Rabbi Soloveitchik, Rabbi Yosef Dovah Levi used to give a chuva drasha that would often go on. It could go on for four to five hours. Now, that a rabbi could speak for four to five hours, that's not a chiddish, right? That that's, we all know, right? But the amazing part was that people stayed and listened. That, that was the incredible part. So people wrote down, rabbi, rabbi Soloveitchik in general did not commit things to writing. And this is actually quite fascinating. He didn't commit them to writing because Daraf felt that when you write something, it's set in stone. Daraf felt that thought was organic. Thought was organic. So what, what I think now is going to be different than what I think in a year from now and certainly in 10 years from now. The Rav felt that thought always has to evolve. So that's why, interestingly enough, you know, every, every year, every couple of years, there's a new book by Rabbi Soloveitchik. Rabbi Soloveitchik has been dead for two decades, but it's amazing he's still putting out works. But again, it's because only now that the Rav has passed away that his students are beginning, well now already they're well into it, of committing his works to writing. So Rabbi Soloveitchik writes in number six, and this to me is such a, such a profound piece. The Rav writes, (laughs) Allah Chuvah, he writes, Har Gosha, chuva, peirusha chazara, And this is a very simple yet incredibly insightful idea. We often translate tshuva, excuse me, as repentance. But the truth is, the etymological root of chuva means "to return." To return, I'm returning. LaAnu Where, where or what am I returning to? Rabbi Soloveitchik says something absolutely amazing. Chuva represents the process of returning to what was. To what was. Or maybe better stated, it's the process of returning to myself. You see, In Judaism, we believe that we are born good. This stands in contradistinction, in contradistinction, let's say to Christianity, which believes that man is born evil. Man is born evil. And by the way, they get that from a Pasek in the Torah. It's a Pasek in the Old Testament. According to them, man is evil from his youth. So again, that's why we have a Torah Shabbat. Right? Torah Shabbat teaches us exactly what that means. It doesn't mean man is evil. It means man has a proclivity or a desire to be evil from his youth, but he is not evil. Man is inherently good. And therefore, Rabbi says something absolutely amazing. He says, the goal of Tshuva, see, we often think the goal of Tshuva is to become someone different. Right? I was this, and now I want to become someone different. But says, Do you know what truly powerful, cathartic Tshuva is? It's returning to yourself. It's finding the person you were before life became so complicated and I became so complicated. It's about finding my pure and pristine self, which each of us possess. And I think the power of this is that as opposed to looking at shuva as a process where I have to cultivate a brand new identity. I want to become someone new. Rabbi Soloveitch says, I don't want to become someone new. It's actually just the opposite. You what the irony is? What do I want to become in shuva? I want to become someone old. I want to become who I was. I want to go back to what I was, to who I was. I want to find my pure and pristine self. And Rabbi Soloveitch says something amazing. He says, essentially Chuva is a desire to reclaim that which has been lost. I had something. I had purity. I had holiness. I had hope. I had optimism. I had a joie de vie, a joy of life. I had dreams. I had aspirations. I had all of these things. And then things happen. Trauma happens. Tragedy happens, broken and frayed relationships happen, and so much of that evaporates. Tshuva is my desire to reclaim that which I have lost. And Rabbi Soloveitchik, he describes it with the Hebrew word ga'aguim. Ga'aguim is a yearning, a yearning, but a yearning for something you had but now you lost. And I want to show you something. I've, I've quoted this piece, I think, over my 18 years here in Baltimore. I think I've quoted this piece probably 37 times. But it is one of my favorite pieces by Rabbi Soloveitchik. And I think it's one of the most moving pieces. Take a look at number seven. So the Rav writes as follows. He desc- now, the Rav does something very interesting. What he does is he describes Guen, a yearning to reclaim something that has been lost. He first describes it in the realm of human relationships. And then uses that as a springboard to describe a spiritual dynamic as well. Take a look at number seven. It's a little bit long, but it's so beautiful. He says, The most painful thing in life is when you yearn for something that you once had and it's now gone and you can't reclaim it. That's the most powerful, the most the most intense yearning. Sometimes a person feels like they're going to lose their mind because the longing for what was is so intense. And look where Rabbi Soloveitchik writes on a very personal level. Rabbi Soloveitchik writes, you know, before Rosh Hashanah, I saw the image of my father. His father is Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik. My father was my Rebbe. He was my only Rebbe throughout my life. And Rav describes, before Rosh I had a conversation with my father. His father had already passed away. I had a conversation with my father, and I told him, my father, my teacher... And he goes on and he says, Father, I came up with so many novel ideas. So many novel ideas. Remember again, this was the relationship that Rabbi Salavichik had with his father. It was a relationship of Torah. And he said, I told my father all of the ideas I came up with. And he said, Father, I know, I could tell there would be some things that I said that you would love and other things that you would vehemently disagree with. This is how I spoke to my father in my imagination. But I knew that as much as I would talk to my father, he would never talk back to me. He says, Rabbi Selvedic writes, What I wouldn't give for five minutes with my father. What I wouldn't give, those conversations that maybe when he was alive I took for granted, what I wouldn't give for five minutes to tell my father all of the novel ideas and to see the nachas in his eyes, what I wouldn't give, and the rough describes over here, that yearning I have to converse with my father, that yearning I have to connect with my father, and I know no matter how much I yearn, I can't reclaim it. Avayadati, ki <speaking in Hebrew> And I know that father, that loving father, who was so close to me for so long, is now so distant. And the heart is ready to explode from the intensity of the yearning. shall All I want, all I wouldn't give for five minutes of conversation. And then he goes on in paragraph B's, and this also is so moving. He says, <laughs> The same thing is true, Rabbi Salavitchik said, it was with my mother and my wife. <laughs> Rabbi Salavitchik because you know, I sat down a few days ago to write my Shabbat Shuvah ishti, <laughs> And I would always, it's interesting, Rabbi Salavitchik said, I would always review my Shabbat Shuvah drasha with my wife. He would review with his wife, and what would his wife say? He so ozerously, the gibbosh harayonos, belitusham, and my wife would help me, organize my thoughts. She would help me go ahead, and organize the way I should express, certain ideas. Gama Shona kasavt And this year, I also wrote the shah drasha. listen to what the Rav writes. Kishani alohsa. And then I ask my wife, Ulai tukhli la'azorli? I ask my wife, can you help me with the drasha? Should I expand on this idea or contract this idea? Or maybe I should stress a particular point. Rabbi Soloveitchik writes, I asked my wife, but no answer came. Rabbi Soloveitchik had passed away that year. I asked her, I asked her, but no answer came. Maybe from Shamayim she whispered back to me, Aval imashiv be'ilanos But her whisper got caught up in the rustling of the trees, and her words never reached my ears. This is how Rabbi Soloveitchik describes those gaaguim, that desire to connect with someone who you love, who you care about, who was in your life for so long, but now is gone. And how badly you yearn to reclaim that relationship. Just five minutes. Just a few moments of togetherness. Just a few moments of connection. And Rabbi Salavichuk writes in paragraph, Gimel: kol adam ne'amad imos Everyone lives with this dynamic, this tragedy of Gagum, of yearning. El zeshahaya Abbe Soloveitchik says, everyone lives with the tragic reality of ga'aguim, of yearning. Some people live with the ga'aguim, the yearning of lost relationships. And some people live with the ga'aguim, the yearning of a lost sense of self. I used to know who I was. I used to have a clear identity. I used to have clearly articulated goals, dreams, and aspirations. You know, I used to have hashkaf. You know, it's interesting. when You talk to a lot of people about hashkafa. You know how many people define their hashkafas in life? By what they're not. By what they're not. It's easy in life to define yourself by what you're not. The real challenge in life is, can you define yourself by what you are? We all have those and We all have that yearning, says Rabbi Soloveitchik a yearning to connect with loved ones who are no longer here, and a yearning to connect with myself, myself, my identity that I know I once possessed, but because of a confluence of life events is no longer here. I yearn to return to me. And says Rabbi Soloveitchik, that is tshuva. Tshuva isn't becoming someone new. Tshuva isn't transforming yourself into someone different, but tshuva is rediscovering who you really are. And I think if we kind of, you know, recede into ourselves a little bit, we'll realize this dynamic of what Rabbi Soloveitchik is describing. How once upon a time, I really knew who I was. Once upon a time, I had a clearly articulated and defined identity. Once upon a time again, I had those dreams and aspirations. I had all of these things, and then life happens. And the same way that sometimes life takes my loved ones, life sometimes takes me. And I'm not the person I once was. And tshuva is the process by which I identify the persona, the identity I once had, and I want to reclaim. Tshuva is going back to the real me. And take a look at number nine, because now we begin. To, and we're going just a little bit out of order, just for a moment. If you take a look at the Tal LeChaim, so this is a beautiful sefer written by Rav Chaim Cohen Zechariah the College of Rafa, who was one of the premier Mikubalim in Eretz Yisrael. He was known, interestingly enough, as the Chalban. The Chalban. What's a Chalban? Is a dairy worker. Do you know where the, one of the greatest Mikubalim worked in Eretz Yisrael in the Tenuva factory? He worked in the Tenuva factory. He was an incredibly unique individual, one of the premier mikubalim in Eretz Yisrael. Very interesting individual. And again, he worked. He was a dairy worker. He was a dairy worker. Very important. Lest anyone tell you that you can't become great in Torah if you have a job. Clearly, you can become even one of the one of the generation's premier mikubalim, even if you're working. Pretty incredible. So the Tal Lechayim writes in number nine. He says something amazing. He says, Pesach is called Chodesh Ha'aviv. It's called Chodesh Ha'aviv. Why is it called Chodesh Ha'aviv? Now, what he points out, we're not going to get into all technicalities, but he points out is as follows. Aviv, right, spring is a season. The seasons are based on the solar calendar. We in Judaism base ourselves on a lunar calendar, which by the way, which is why sometimes Pesach poses a little bit of a calendrical problem. This is why, again, if we see that Pesach is going to fall out in the middle of the winter, we make a leap year. That's why the only time, the only month that's made into a leap month is Adar. Because the only reason we make a leap year is if Pesach is going to fall out, quote-unquote, too early. And this anomaly, this calendrical anomaly, is based on the fact that the Torah calls Pesach the Chag HaAviv, which again is very strange to take a lunar calendar, take a lunar calendar and hinge it on the seasons. And the Tali says something amazing. He says, "Because Hakadosh Baruch hu is teaching us about the power of Pesach, why does the Torah call Pesach Chag Aviv?" Skip down to paragraph Beis. It's a very deep answer. Hu what happens in the spring? What happens in the spring? Nature comes back to life. The natural world. The natural world begins to regenerate. That that which looked dead now comes back to life. Shehu bechinas gu'ula leteva. It is a redemption for the natural world. What does it mean? What does it mean spring is a redemption for the natural world? When you look at the natural world during, during the winter, what does it look like? What does it look like? It looks like nature is down and out. Down and out. Not coming back, it's over. And then spring comes and the natural world comes back to life. And remember again, how does the natural world come back to life? How does it come back to life? From within. From within, right? Remember again, go back to Tu Bishvat for just a moment. The significance of Tu Bishvat is that the sap is coursing through the trees. The trees may not look any different on the outside, but the sap of vitality is coursing through the trees. Nature is redeemed in the spring. What does it mean, nature is redeemed? It looked dead. I thought nature was gone. I thought the world was done. But yet, then nature redeems itself. Something amazing happens in the spring, which is that which looked lifeless and hopeless now begins to regenerate, but it regenerates from within. Because what it tells me, when when spring comes and nature begins to regenerate, what I realize is this whole time, there's been a koach, there's been a power inside of the natural world. So when the trees begin to go out and sprout their leaves or sprout their fruit, that koach didn't just appear right now. It was actually there the entire winter. It was dormant. But it was there. When spring comes, nature is redeemed. I thought nature was lifeless. I thought nature was hopeless. I thought there was no vitality. And now I saw that although externally there was no vitality, at the end of the day, there was always vitality from the beginning. He goes on, What is redemption? Redemption is taking your potential and turning it into kinetic energy. Redemption, Geula, means taking the koach, the energy, the power you have inside, and then bringing it out externally. lomar, al hu You know, sometimes we think, what's Geula, cool? what's redemption? Redemption is like something new, something brand new. Beforehand, everything was dead. Now gu'ula, now redemption comes and everything is alive. It's not true, says the Tal Chaim. Redemption means taking the power that was always there, it was always there. It was always inside the tree. It was always in nature. It just wasn't actualized. And then the spring comes, the climate changes, and all of that internal strength now comes out. If you skip down to the end of paragraph, base, he says something so beautiful. He says, Elah <speaking> ha'or in ba'omek <Hebrew> He says, do you want to know why Pesach is called the Chag Aviv? Why is it called the month of the Yumtiv of Spring? Why why link? Why link a lunar yumtiv to a solar season? Because do you want to know the entire essence of Pesach? Pesach is a celebration of the revival of nature. Pesach, this geulah of Pesach, is That we possessed incredible koach, incredible strength, and incredible spiritual vitality that lay dormant for 210 years. But then Pesach came, spring came, and that dormant energy came back to life. Pesach is the return to the self. And by the way, when you understand Pesach this way, everything begins to make sense. You ever wonder, why didn't Pablo let us go? Why didn't Paro let us go? Right? Moshe, Moshe comes, the Makos are there, it's clear he's gonna lose. Okay, so of course Hashem hardened his heart. But if I were to ask you, right, if Paro's laying down on your couch and he's, you're, you're, you're analyzing him, right, why isn't he letting the Jews go? Any thoughts? I'll tell you what I think. I think at the end of because he said, Are you kidding me? Look at these people. They're a nothing. They're a nothing. They turn on each other, they fight with each other, they have no sense of optimism, of hope, of destiny, they have no dreams or aspirations. They're unsalvageable. They're unsalvageable. Claudisol gets to the sea, and the sea won't split, the Medrash says. The sea won't split. Do you know why the sea won't split? Because the sea says to God, come on, come on. Do you see these guys? It's not an exact quote, but you understand. right? Do you see these guys, do you see these people? You want to change the laws of nature for these people? They're pathetic. They're pathetic. Every single time something goes wrong, they cry, they turn on Moshe, they're accusatory, they're this, they're that, they don't have gratitude. Let, let them die. Just finish it off, start again from Moshe, and stop. The seed doesn't want to split. Paro doesn't want to let the Jews go because they're nothing. The seed doesn't want to split. And by the way, I'll tell you a little secret. Even Moshe Rabbeinu in the beginning said to God, are you sure you sent me to the right nation? Are you sure th- these are the chosen people? Or are you positive about that? Just want to make sure. Jews, descendants of Abraham, in Egypt, 200, these are the people you want to redeem. Even Moshe Rabbeinu has difficulty at first seeing the goodness in Christ. So then I'll show you something amazing. Yet if we fast forward to the Yam Suf, what happens at the Yamsuf? Take a look at number eight now. The Gimar Maseches Sota says, just so you understand the confluence of events. So the Jewish people are standing by the banks of the Red Sea. So remember again, what's the order of events? The order of events are they turn to Moshe and they say, why did you take us out of Egypt to die? Right? Why couldn't we just die in Egypt? So first they accuse Moshe of taking them out to die, and then again they start yelling and screaming, we should go back to Egypt. And then number eight, what happens? What happens by the Yamsuf? The tribes began to fight with each other, and what was the fight? They began arguing, arguing about who gets to go into the Yam Suf first. What? arguing. <laughs> the sea hasn't split yet. The sea hasn't split. But Moshe said, "We got to go." So they're arguing now. The tribes are arguing. Who gets the privilege of going into the sea first? The Gemara says while they're arguing, so ultimately, again, the shevet Abinam and Nachshom and Aminadov, he goes in first. So what happened? I, I don't understand. I don't understand the progression of events. They were just accusing Moshe. They were just accusing Moshe, blaming Moshe for taking them out. Saying essentially, by the way, when you accuse Moshe, you're ultimately accusing God. And now we're arguing about who's going to go into the sea first. How does that happen? That's called Chag HaAviv. That's called Geula. That's called Shuvah. You see, by the banks of the Red Sea, the Jews found their inner self. They found their sap. They returned to who they were. They reclaimed their former sense of self. That's why, by the way, just as an aside, Shvi'i Shal Pesach, the seventh day of Pesach, when we go out and we commemorate the splitting of the sea, it takes on even a more simchidic tone than the rest of Yantiv. Why, why is it more joyous than the rest of Yantiv? Because on a deep level, it was on that moment by the Red Sea where the Jewish people did Shuvah. They didn't turn into someone new. They reclaimed their former selves that had been lost over 210 years of servitude. They felt the emergence of their inner nature. They experienced their spring. They experienced their Shuvah. And now if we come full circle, we begin to appreciate the distinction between chametz and Matzah. If you remember again, what's the distinction between chametz and matzah? One letter, or two letters, which are ches and hey. Ches and hey. So remember again, the chametz, chametz has the ches, matzah has the hey. So perhaps, perhaps, what HaKadosh Baruch is trying to teach us is as follows. You see, matzah has the hey of tshuva. Matzah has the hay of reclaiming the self. Matzah has the hay of being able to return to yourself. Chametz, chametz, remember again, what happens with ches? Ches, you could fall out, But you can't come back in. Do you know one of the major distinctions between chametz and matzah? One of the major distinctions? How do you make chametz? How do you make chametz? So the answer is, you don't make chametz. Chametz is made by external forces. Right? Remember again, there are two ways something could become chametz. You introduce a leavening agent, like yeast, and therefore it's the yeast that creates chametz. Or, what else could create chametz? Time. The passage of time. Don't do anything. Don't do anything, time or yeast, time or a leavening agent. So something amazing about chametz, the identity of chametz is not created by the individual. The identity of chametz is created by external stimuli. And perhaps the severity of the prohibition of chametz is to teach us something amazing, which is don't let your identity in life be created by others. Be a matzah Jew, not a hamish. You see, matzah, on the other hand, how do you make matzah? How do you make matzah? If you've ever made matzah. You know, by the way, it looks very easy, but it's actually not. Why? Because if you want to make matzah, you have to knead the dough. Uh, again, I guess I don't have that much dough kneading experience, but I know when I baked matzah, my hands were tired after, after like 30 seconds. It's intense. You, ha- you, ha- you have to keep going. You have to, in other words, if you want to make matzah, you got to make it yourself. Matzah can't be made by time, because if you let time set in, chametz occurs. Matzah can't be created by a leavening agent, because then it's chametz. Matzah is made by you, and only you. The diversity between chametz and matzah, the diversity between tshuva and non-tshuva. is the seen falling out and never coming back in, or falling out and finally coming back in. In other words, matzah represents the ability to create your own identity. And for the purpose of tshuva, it means the ability to reclaim the identity that you have lost. Versus Khametz, which is allowing other people to tell you who you need to be. Or what you need to be. Khametz is when you give other people the power of creation over who you are. And Matzah is when you decide to create your own identity. Chamitz says that when you when you lose your way and you fall out of God's grace, you fall out the bottom... There's no way back in. And Matzah says, even if you stray, there's always a way back. It's true. You can't come back in the same way you fell out. You have to work a little bit harder to get yourself back in. But you could always get back in. And now we understand why Hametz is dealt with so severely. Because Hametz represents the antithesis of who we are. Hametz says, there's no tshuva. The ches is closed on all three sides. So once you fall out, there's no way back. Hametz says, you are who the world tells you you are going to be. You are who other people dictate you need to be. And so comes that Kaddish Baruch when he says, listen, I can't, excuse me, I can't outlaw Hametz the entire year, but I will make it severely prohibited for seven days. Because if you want to be successful in life, you have to believe in Shuva. You have to believe that you could find your way back in. And you have to believe that you could reclaim your former self. And if you want to be a proper Jew, you have to create your own identity and not let others create one for you. This is why the prohibition of Chametz is dealt with so severely. And I think if we kind of take a step back for a moment, I think many of us lose our sense of self over the course of the journey of life. Now, I think the good news is we don't think about it that much, which sometimes it's good not to think. So I I often think that like people who don't think are much happier. It it just appears that life is so much sweeter, right? You just, you you go through your day, you know, whatever, good day, bad day, whatever. You don't really read that much into it. You know, and there's tomorrow and there's next week when you think life is much more challenging And I think if we begin to think, we realize, again, I can only speak for myself, but you feel like you've lost who you are over the course of life. And when I say lost who you are, I don't mean engaging in negative behaviors or sinful behaviors. It's just kind of as we go through life, we lose our identity, right? If somebody were to stop you and to ask you, tell me who you are in one sentence. Tell me who you are. So, of course, the biggest temptation is to define yourself by your by your profession. Oh, what am I? I'm a rabbi. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a teacher. Whatever, whatever it is. that's But that's not who I am. That's not who I am. That's what I do. And hopefully something very meaningful in my life. But who am I? What are my dreams? What are my aspirations? What are my goals? How do I measure if I'm living a successful life or not? And we often lose our way, and I think what often happens is that many of us become people we need to become. You know, I, I want to give you just an example of this. <laughs> I'm sure that uh, my mishpacha is going to get very upset at me for this, but I, I, it was very straight. Just don't tell the girls about this. You know, my 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 second oldest daughter is now in the in the Persha of seminaries. Right, and so and so, she had her seminary, her seminary uh, interviews, and she it was on a Sunday, and she was going out on Monday Shabbos. I said, Shifler, where are you going? Oh, I have to borrow shoes. I have to borrow shoes. I said, I checked my credit card statement. I'm pretty sure you have plenty of shoes, right? Baruch Hashem, there's enough shoes in our house. We, we could open a wholesale business. Hey, she says, no, no, no. I, I need a specific kind of shoe. Okay, so I don't know, I'm not such a mumcha in shoes. But I, 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 need, I need a specific kind of shoe for this. And a specific kind of earring for this. And a specific look for this. And I, I felt so sad. I felt so sad. And what I wanted to say was Shefala, don't let the world dictate to you how you're supposed to look or that a particular look this is good, and this is not good. Yes, I want to be clear. Is conformity a necessity? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're all about conformity. We have the same 613 mitzvahs. We have halachas of tzniyaz. We have halachas of kashras. We have halachas of shabbos. So we, we, of course, we have conformity. But yet, so many times, we force conformity when it's not necessary. Because we create a model that this is the model. This is the model. So if, uh, if you fit like this down to the shoes, you're good to go. But if a different shoe, a different loafer, a different this, a different that, uh, it raises questions. As if a piece of foot apparel has anything to do with anything. And as we get older, this takes on greater intensity. In the area of Shidduchim, it takes on incredible intensity. I'm not going to spend time on Shidduchim right now. In the area of Shidduchim, it takes on incredible intensity. The most ridiculous things where someone decided that this is what a good boy looks like. And this is what a good girl looks like. So the great thing is you could be the biggest faker in the world. But as long as you look the part, you're good to go. The problem just is if you're a genuine person but don't want to buy into the fakeness that sometimes surrounds us, you're stuck because the system is the system. As I'm often reminded and as we get older, we fall into these mindsets. And again, I want to be clear. I'm not a buck the system kind of guy. I'm a big believer in the system. The system is what keeps our people intact. And the system is what has allowed us, has what preserved us. So those who buck the system or try to make inappropriate innovations, they're doing a terrible, terrible disservice to Yiddishkeit. And are, it's an incredible affront to the ribon and everything we hold sacred. So conformity is a necessity. But at the same time, don't let someone dictate who and what you are. Find your Self. And there's no better time to do that than on Pesach. Because Pesach is the of Aviv. Pesach is the emergence of the self. Pesach has Matzah, which has a hey, not a ches, which allows me to reclaim that which has been lost. Imagine for a moment if it took some time in the days leading up to Pesach. I don't know that anyone has time before Pesach. I would suggest doing this at the Seder. The problem is if you close your eyes at the Savior, you run the risk of waking up the next morning. Right? So, but imagine for a moment if you're able to carve out for yourself a few minutes of solitude, solitude, no, no one else around, all the devices are off, and you think about, who am I? And maybe the first question was, who was I? If I think about the prime of my life, who was I in that prime? was I in that prime? And then what happened to that person? And by the way, there's a lot of good reasons why we change over time. A lot of stuff happens in life that changes us. But what happened to that person? And how can I reclaim her? How could I reclaim him? How could I get, I'll just share with you on a personal level. I had an experience like this last Pesach. I, I, I think, you know, last Pesach was the beginning of the pandemic. It's, it's, it's incredible to think that we're talking now a year and for many of us, it was a dramatically different kind of yomtiv on, on, on every level. Thank God, I'm privileged that Baruch Hashem, I have a family in my house, and so it's never quiet. And there's always commotion, there's always something going on. So usually we would have extended mishpacha, but this was like the first time uh, in probably two decades that it was Aviva and I and our children, and that was the whole seder. And it was, I have to say, one of the most incredible Seder experiences of my entire life. And I want to share with you a moment from that Seder. It was right, right by Shvoch HaMoscha. Right when we pour the Koshe Elio. So we remember that the, the Minog is that we open the door. We open the door. So of course, again, we open the door Shvoch HaMoscha. It's the Shimurim. We show we're not afraid. But of course, you know, I always tell my children the same thing. I tell them, you know, when you open the door, You have to believe with all of your heart that Eliyahu Hanavi is going to be standing there. You have to believe. It's Pesach. Tonight is the night of miracles. Tonight is the night when 210 years of servitude ended in the blink of an eye. If 210 years of servitude, if slaves could become free men tonight, then why can't Eliyahu Hanavi come? So I said to my children, I said, before we open the door, said, so does everyone believe that Eliyahu HaNavi could be here tonight? And I said, yes. And I said, but before we open the door, if he's not here, I can't be disappointed. If he's not here, you just have to say, I'm sad. I wish Eliyahu HaNavi was here. But if not today, then I'm here tomorrow. And we opened the door. And unfortunately, Eliyahu HaNavi wasn't there. And I remember we walking out into the dead of the night. It was, I think it was still cold last Pesach also. And that feeling of longing for something greater. And it was probably because the pandemic was starting and there was so much unknown and no one knew what was going to happen or how things were going to unfold. And we felt so dependent on the Ribbon And I remember that feeling of standing out there that night Underneath the dark sky with all of my children, almost all of my children, my married daughter wasn't with us, actually, almost all of my children, and wanting so badly for something bigger in life, yearning for something more. And then it hit me. I hadn't felt that way in years. And I said to myself, wow, I used to always be a person who dreamed Bigger. I always used to be the person who said, I want to do something dramatic. I want to accomplish something, not dramatic public, but dramatic that I know that I made a difference. I was always that person who wanted something more out of life. Then I said to myself, what happened to that person? How could it be that this is the first time I'm feeling that after so many years? But that's what it means to do tshuva. That's what it means to reclaim your lost sense of self. We have to take the time to identify who we once were and who we want to become again. And you can't wait until the Seder, because at the Seder, there's already too much stuff going on, right? There's too much activity, right? Yeah, Of course, you have the general Seder tug of war, right? The the family member who wants to go fast, the family member wants to say 17 divrei Torah on every single word in the Haggadah, right? And of course, Baruch Hashem, nothing like World War III at the Seder for Avos Yisrael, Shalom Yisrael, it's great, right? So Seder is not usually, for most of us, like a very contemplative time. It's Baruch Hashem, there's a, a good kind of cacophony. But to take the time before the Seder to really think about this, I don't eat chametz over Pesach. I only eat matzah. I need to find my way back into the hay. I need to find my way back to HaKadosh Baruch But the truth is, I need to find my way back to me. Because there's so much good inside of me. There's so much beauty inside of me. There's so much holiness inside of me. Just for whatever the reason, over the journey of life, I lose it or I misplace it or I misappropriate it. But now I want it back. That's the chuva of matzah. That's the chaga of And if you're being this full circle with this, I'll conclude. Perhaps this is the meaning of chayiv. I didn't forget about the first part. This is the meaning of chayiv adam liros as atzmo. Ki ilu hu I remember again an hour ago we began, we asked our first question. What does this mean that a person is supposed to see themselves as if they left Egypt? What does that mean? How am I supposed to relate to that? Perhaps you just have to put the comma in a different place, and perhaps so you have to read it it's like this: of Adam Liros Es Atzmo. Do you know what the avodah of the seder is? Find yourself. Find yourself. Find your, Find your inner self. Reclaim your lost sense of self. And if you do that, Keilu Hu Yatsam then you'll be just like our Zedas and Babas who left Egypt. Because what did they do? They left, they left a downtrodden, beaten down nation of slaves. And then by the banks of the Red Sea, they found their inner sap. They found their vitality. They found their former self. They did tshuva. They experienced the Jewish spring. They went ahead and they reconnected with their former lost self. Chayiv adam Liros es atzmo. What you have to do on Pesach is find atzmo. Find yourself, and if you do that, then you will recreate the redemptive and salvational experience for yourself, for your mishpacha, and for all of Chal So we should be zochemir eretz We're getting a good head start on Pesach preparation. So I give us all two brachas. I give us the brachah number one that in the days leading up to Pesach. You know, Pesach is not just about preparing your home. It's about preparing your neshama. The same way I clean the chametz out of my cabinets, I need to clean the chametz out of my heart and soul as well. I want to get ready for this yomtiv. We should be zocha, to do tshuva. We should be zocha, to come back in through the little through the little nook and cranny on the hay. We should be zocha, to reclaim our relationship with God and our relationship with ourselves, our former selves. And if we do that, then mirat Hashem, when we open the door this coming Pesach night, when we open the door, halavai will be not just to wish for Elio, but to see a smiling countenance waiting for us, telling us that Moshiach is on his way. Geula has arrived. The Beis HaMikdash will be rebuilt. And it is time for all of us to go back to Eretz Yisrael together and forever. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful evening.